Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dwyer and this is The Norman Invasion Part 3, The Conquest Begins. In previous instalments of this series on the Norman Conquest of Ireland, we saw how the King of Leinster, Diarmid MacMurrah, was deposed from power in 1166. In Part 2, he fled into exile seeking military assistance from the Norman nobles in South Wales. In this episode, the time has come for Dermot's exile to end, but the main force of his Norman allies are not yet ready to come to Ireland. All he has are a few warriors, led by the Norman Robert Fitzgodbert. We will see the earliest Normans land in Ireland with Dermot in 1167. They will quickly find themselves with their backs to the wall as Dermot's enemies are nonplussed he has returned. Before I begin, I just want to say a brief word about my upcoming tours of medieval Dublin I mentioned in previous shows. The tour on July 12th is now completely booked out, but there are still five places available for the tour on July 26th. There is more detail on the tour coming up later in this episode. But to book your place, go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash medieval tour or contact me at history at irishhistorypodcast.ie. That's history at irishhistorypodcast.ie. In 1167, Dermot MacMurrah boarded ship in Wales and set out for home. It had been exactly a year since he had been forced into exile from Ireland by his rivals, Rory O'Connor, the King of Connacht, and his ally, Dermot's bitter enemy, Tiernan O'Rourke. Dermot, however, had been busy during those long 12 months of exile. He had travelled thousands of miles, met with King Henry II, the King of the Angevin Empire, as he looked for men who would come to Ireland and help him regain his land and power. Eventually, he found men willing to organise a Norman force to travel to Ireland in the Lord of Strigol, 
Strongbow, and two brothers, Morris Fitzgerald and Robert Fitzstevens. While Dermot left for Ireland in August 1167, these Norman nobles were not with him. They needed time to prepare. However, Dermot was accompanied by a tiny force numbering a few dozen men, led by Robert Fitzgodbert. But this was more a bodyguard than an army. As he travelled across the Irish Sea and Ireland came into view on the horizon, MacMurra must have been to some degree anxious. If this was a screenplay, Dermot would no doubt have kissed the sand of the Irish beach after he waded ashore. But the reality of what he faced was far from this romantic vision of a returning exile. Dermot MacMurra, once in Ireland, was entering into a hostile land and a situation of great peril for him. Once his enemies in Ireland heard he had returned, they would want to strike at him. And given he had few warriors with him, he would be lucky to stay alive. As this small party of a few dozen gathered themselves on the beach in Wexford where they had landed, the Norman leader who had travelled with Dermot, Robert Fitzgodbert, can only have been apprehensive to some degree. No matter how brave or great a warrior he was, when he looked at the Irish countryside rising up before him, he must have felt fear to some degree. Fitzgodbert had grown up in a Norman society that saw Ireland as a wild, barbarous and dangerous land. To make matters worse, he had a difficult and dangerous task ahead of him. This was to keep Dermot Machmura alive until larger forces under Strongbow and Robert Fitzstephen could follow. Given the enemies Dermot had, this was no easy assignment. Setting out inland, Dermot and the Normans made their way to Ferns, a settlement 20 kilometres from the coast. It had been here where Dermot had based himself when he had been King of Leinster. So, if he was to find support anywhere in Ireland, it would be at Ferns. As a motley group of MacMurra and his allies crossed the Irish countryside in August, passing fields ripe with crops, news must have travelled fast that something was afoot, even if it was not known that it was Dermot who had returned. The few dozen Normans under Fitzgodbert can only have aroused suspicion, with their unusual clothes, strange language and odd appearance. The Normans shaved a distinctive V-shape into the back of their heads. It's doubtful these men could have remained a secret for long. For the Normans, they would have found Ireland strange in many respects. There were no castles like those that dotted the countryside of Norman England and Wales. However, on reaching Ferns, they would have found surrounds that were somewhat familiar at the Augustinian Abbey there. While religious institutions were common in Ireland, orders like the Augustinians were unusual on the island in the mid-12th century. As a continental order, they were more common in Norman England and Europe. However, Dermot MacMurra, while ruling Leinster, had been among the first to bring them to Ireland when he invited them to Ferns, and they now repaid Dermot by providing him and his Norman allies with quarters. The first task for Dermot was to take back control of his family group, the Ekinchelug. This powerful family, based in South Leinster, had under Dermot controlled all the territory as far north as Dublin. However, in 1167, Dermot found much had changed in his 12-month absence. 
when he had been exiled, his once powerful kingdom had been partitioned in two, a tool frequently used by Gaelic kings to weaken enemies. Rory O'Connor, who had driven Dermot out, had divided his kingdom between Dermot's own brother and the neighbouring king of Ossery. While we don't know the details of what exactly happened, Dermot seems to have easily been able to depose his brother and reassert his dominance within his own family at least. But he still struggled to exert any major influence and danger lay all around. To his west lay the ambitious king of Ossery who now held a large swathe of territory Dermot had once ruled. While in Connacht his old enemy Rory O'Connor, now the unquestioned High King of Ireland, was going from strength to strength. Indeed, he was quickly becoming more powerful than any other king in Irish history to that date. In this situation, where the Dermot would survive long enough for the main Norman force to arrive to reinstate him as king of his old territories was debatable. Next, we'll take a look at the greatest threat to Dermot, Rory O'Connor, and how he had become an incredibly powerful figure during Dermot's exile. When Dermot MacMurrah had sailed into exile the previous year of 1166, the victor in the situation had been Rory O'Connor. Dermot had been the last major foe Rory had faced and he probably thought he had seen the last of him as he sailed out into exile. Indeed, Dermot's departure had been somewhat pitiful. He had not left with an army, but instead with a few attendants, his wife and one of his children, his daughter Aoife. There's little doubt that word drifted back to Rory through his allies in the well-connected port of Dublin about Dermot's wanderings across the Norman kingdom where he was seeking allies. However, this can hardly have worried Rory. He had grown immensely powerful during the year of Dermot's absence. He had taken full advantage when Murkertoch MacLachlan, his rival and Dermot's ally, had fallen from power amid dramatic circumstances, which is covered in part one. When McLaughlin was killed in 1166, Rory acted decisively, eliminating not only his rivals, but even potential rivals. In a few bold campaigns, such as those in Munster and Leinster in later 1166, he carved up once powerful kingdoms, dividing them between rivals, which reduced what had been threats into weak, divided lands. By early 1167, before Dermid returned, there was only one outstanding problem for Rory. What to do with his old rival, Murkertoch MacLachlan's kingdom in western Ulster. There were worrying portents for the future when Murkertoch's son, Niall, became king and while he was not yet in a position to challenge Rory, he had begun to recoup some of his father's lost power by dominating the Canal Connell in modern Donegal. In taking on the north, though, Rory needed to be careful. Many kings found a grave in Ulster when they had pursued glory there. He began his campaign in 1167 when he first gathered a royal council of his allies. In attendance was Tiernan O'Rourke, several kings from eastern Ulster, the King of Meath and the Norse King of Dublin, amongst others. After the council passed several edicts, primarily about the glory of God and Rory, he set about taking action. In the summer of 1167, at the head of an army, he and his allies moved into Ulster. There was no hope that Niall McLaughlin could stand up to Rory 
as his great army flooded over western Ulster. So he submitted to the great king of Connacht. However, Rory was not like previous kings. He wasn't willing to settle for submission only. Instead, he now cleaved apart the kingdom of western Ulster, which had produced some of Ireland's great high kings of the past. Niall MacLachlan received half of the territory his father had ruled, while his distant cousin and bitter rival, A. O'Neill, received the other. This ensured that neither would become very powerful and they would in all likelihood spend the coming years attacking each other rather than dreaming up ambitious plans to attack Rory. Returning to Connacht, Rory could now without doubt claim the title of High King of Ireland. It was in this context, reportedly only having returned from his campaign in Ulster just one week, that he learned his old rival Dermot had returned from exile with a ragtag bunch of mercenaries. Rory, having quashed opposition across Ireland, now moved south with a small force, along with Tiernan O'Rourke, to see for himself what was going on in Leinster. Next we shall see Rory confront Dermot's Norman allies in battle for the first time. But first, I want to take a quick break. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. As Roy O'Connor and Tiernan O'Rourke moved southeast through Ireland towards Leinster to investigate the threat posed by Dermot McMurrah, they must have been supremely confident. Never before had a king eliminated opposition to the extent that Rory had. Dermot, on the other hand, was in no position to even fight a pitched battle. He had few allies save his small force of Normans who had come with him. However, he had little choice now but to meet with Rory. So he gathered what troops he could and went out to confront the High King and his ally, Tiernan O'Rourke. It is worth remembering that while political considerations and power was the primary concern for Rory. There was a deep, personal aspect to this dispute. Tiernan O'Rourke, Rory's ally, hated Dermot McMurrah after Dermot had eloped or possibly abducted his wife Dervla in 1152. This made the upcoming encounter even more bitter than it inevitably would have been anyway. With Rory O'Connor and his ally bearing down on Leinster, Dermot McMurrah took the fight to his attackers. But while no major battle was joined, two minor clashes was enough to see Dermot defeated. His Norman allies were too few in number to make any difference and O'Rourke killed several of them in a skirmish. The idea that Dermot could use this force to hold out against O'Connor and O'Rourke until the main force of Normans had arrived was clearly out of the question. However, his weak showing in this initial conflict 
to some extent, would play to his advantage. From their encounter on the field of battle, it seemed to O'Rourke and O'Connor that they had nothing to fear from McMurrah. While they had no doubt heard Dermot had brought back allies from Wales, the few dozen warriors who accompanied him were not going to be any game changer, or so they thought. They had no clue at this point McMurrah had promises from much more powerful Normans to help him. In this context, the best strategy for Dermot was to sue for peace, submit and recognise Rory as king. Any thought, as I said, of holding off O'Connor militarily was out of the question. If he wanted to, Rory O'Connor could swat Dermot and his meagre force of allies away like flies. So it was, Dermot then submitted to Rory, but the humiliation and exaction demanded was high. Seven hostages had to be handed over, while Tiernan O'Rourke, Dermot's bitter rival, was to be given 100 ounces of silver as a form of compensation for the abduction or possibly eloping with his wife Dervla back in 1152. Whether part of the deal or not isn't clear, but the Normans and Fitzgodbert also left Ireland after this as well. It is possible that they just realised they couldn't hope to defend McMurrah militarily, or perhaps more likely Rory O'Connor now wanted them out of the country. Either which way, the first Norman intervention in Ireland had been an unmitigated disaster. Dermot McMurrah, having left Ireland to go into exile with dreams of being restored to power with Norman backing, was now just a minor figure on the periphery of Irish politics. But he did have that major card yet to play in Strongbow and the other Normans yet to arrive. He could suffer the humiliation of submitting to Rory and paying Tiernan O'Rourke in the knowledge that things would be so different when his allies arrived. However, as 1167 gave way to 1168 and there was still no sign of Strongbow or Fitzstephen, Dermot's hopes must have begun to wane. Since Fitzgolibert had left in 1167, there had been no news from Wales. While this caused uncertainty and no doubt kept Dermot awake at night, had he known what exactly was happening across the Irish Sea, he may well have even thrown in the towel altogether and given up all hope. After Dermot had left Bristol and headed through Wales and back to Ireland, his newfound allies, principally Strongbow, began to make preparations to leave. Strongbow, the Lord of Stragoyle, needed the permission of Henry II before he could travel to Ireland. The King, Henry II, however, did not trust Strongbow, given he had fought against Henry's mother, Maud, in the 1140s. When exactly Strongbow approached Henry is not entirely clear, but it seems the King was less than forthcoming with the permission needed. Indeed, in late 1167, he seems to have done everything he could to stop Strongbow coming to Ireland. In September of that year, Henry's daughter, Matilda, had to go to Germany to marry Henry the Lion, the Duke of Saxony. Henry included Strongbow in the retinue who had to accompany the princess across Europe. So as things went from bad to worse in Ireland, Strongbow found himself at a wedding in Minden in Germany, a town on the Weiser River near Hanover. Now everyone likes a good wedding and Germany is a great place to go. But in 1168, when you're supposed to be planning a large-scale military invasion in Ireland, it wasn't the place to be. Worse still for Dermot, Robert Fitzstephens and his half-brother, Morris Fitzgerald, who had also agreed to travel to Ireland, 
still had made no progress either. In part two, I mentioned that Fitzstevens had been released from prison by his captor, Rhys Ap Griffith, in 1166 on the condition that he go to Ireland, but I was incorrect. By 1168, Robert Fitzstephen was still languishing in captivity, even though Rhys Ap Griffith, the Welsh prince, had said he could travel to Ireland. Allies like these were of no use to Dermot, who increasingly looked like he would be dead or deposed before they arrived. In 1168, Gilapatric, the king of Osry, attacked him and blinded his son Aena. Gilapatric had already been given a substantial swathe of Dermot's territory after he fled into exile, and the two now were bitter enemies. In 1169, in a further illustration of Dermot's total impotence militarily and politically in Ireland, Rory O'Connor arrived in Leinster demanding further exactions, and on this occasion, Dermot had to hand over his son, Connor, as a hostage. It was clear Dermot was now desperate. How long he would remain in power was uncertain. To his west lay Osry, ruled by Gilapatric. If war was to break out between the two, a highly likely possibility, Dermot would have no or very few friends. It was now or never that he needed his Norman allies. If they did not come in 1169, they would be of no use. In this moment of crisis, Dermot dispatched his interpreter, a man called Morris O'Regan, back to Wales to try and hurry the Normans up. His message was clear. According to an early 13th century account based on O'Regan's own testimony, he promised that Whoever shall come for land or pence, horses, armour or charges, gold and silver I shall give them, very ample pay. Whoever shall wish for soil or sod, rich shall I enfeef them. For the Normans in Wales, much of the attraction of coming to Ireland was this promise of land and wealth, as they had very little future or hope of political advancement at home. In this situation, with the promise of such great wealth if they came to Ireland, they were not about to allow the potential of aggrandisement and land die if Dermot MacMurrah was driven from power. However, in 1169, Richard Fitzgilbert, that strongbow, was still not in a position to travel. He had returned from Germany after the wedding of Matilda and Henry the Lion, but it's not clear when or even if he had gotten royal permission to travel to Ireland. One way or another, he could not respond with the immediacy Dermot MacMurrah needed. Morris Fitzgerald was, however, in a better position. He finally secured the release of his stepbrother, Robert Fitzstephen, from his captor, Rhys Ap Griffith, as had been agreed with Dermot MacMurrah in 1167. And these two men organised a force of 36 knights, 60 men-at-arms and 300 foot soldiers. They were joined by Hervé de Montmorency, the uncle of and a spy for Strongbow, who was now worried that these brothers, who were about to depart for Ireland, were going to take what had been promised to Strongbow. Leaving Wales in April 1169, Fitzstephens and Fitzgerald arrived off the Irish coast on May 1st. As they sailed into Banno Bay on the south coast of Ireland, theirs and Ireland's future was about to change. Two days later, they were joined by another Norman, Morris de Prendergast, who had raised 200 archers and 10 other men-at-arms. This force now amounted to a small army. The Norman invasion of Ireland had begun. Join me next time for the initial battle in the invasion, 
which will focus on the enthralling siege of Wexford. Until next time, Sloan. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.